Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Hello, I'm Jason Palmer, editor of Espresso, The Economist's daily briefing app, and you're listening to Babbage, a weekly conversation on science and technology. On today's program... If we don't act boldly... The bill that could come due will be mass migrations and cities submerged and nations displaced and food supplies decimated and conflicts born of despair. As Climate Week plays out in New York, we assess the current global efforts in the fight against climate change. It's really very important that China and America led the way. We explore how developments in X-ray scanning are allowing us to read ancient scrolls, even those that are burnt to a crisp. Well, it turns out this scroll is the Bible. It is the first and second chapters of the book of Leviticus. And how bad science may be hereditary. Increasingly, more and more junk science just litters the scientific literature. More about that a little later. First up... There must be a sense of urgency about bringing the agreement into force and helping poorer countries leapfrog destructive forms of energy. It's Climate Week in New York, coinciding with the UN General Assembly in which climate change is set to be high on the agenda. Our environment correspondent, Miranda Johnson, joins us now to assess the current climate change landscape. Miranda, it's been something like nine months since last we talked about environment in great detail. Now we're here at Climate Week. What's happened since the the Paris Agreement? So there's been a lot of action, actually, since last December when the Paris deal was adopted. The next stage in the process is, is ratification. Countries actually each have to sign on the dotted line, as it were. And recently... China and America both did this. They led the way. And today, in fact, at UN meetings in New York, 30 more countries or so are expected to ratify as well. For the climate deal to enter into force, we need 55 countries representing 55% of global emissions to sign up. And at the end of today, we could potentially have about 60 countries covering 48% of emissions. But it's really very important that China and America led the way because those two together cover about 39% of emissions. So it was important that they took that big first step. And it does, as you say, seem to be moving quite quickly. Why is that? I think that there is and was a lot of momentum coming out of Paris. The public nature of countries' pledges meant that uh, it was always going to be very obvious and easy to name and shame countries that didn't move quickly with the ratification process. I also think that both Barack Obama and UN uh, Secretary General Ban Ki-moon are concerned about their legacies. They're both leaving office soon and they wanted to get the climate deal done and uh, into force as quickly as possible. I have to imagine that thoughts of the next administration possibly being a little less amenable to climate legislation playing something of a role here. I think that probably is the case as well. Obviously, Hillary Clinton has laid out plans on you know everything from renewables to tackling air pollution in cities. But she has also said that she will respect the United States' joining of the Paris Agreement and fulfill commitments it has made as part of that. 
whereas Donald Trump has said that he would, I think, rip up the Paris deal. But actually, if it comes into force, it would be very difficult for him to do so. And certainly if it came into a force before a President Trump got into the White House, he would have to go through a formal withdrawal process if indeed America did want to pull back from the Paris deal. And, and that would be complicated. Right. And the, the Paris Agreement is, is not the only treaty you've been thinking about this week. No. So I think that the Paris deal was possible at all because of good cooperation between China and America. But actually, the thing that Xi Jinping and Barack Obama first cooperated on was back in 2013, they both agreed that it would be good to do something about hydrofluorocarbons or HFCs. And these are substances that were introduced instead of chlorofluorocarbons, CFCs, which are substances that you found in things like hairsprays and also used as refrigerants. This is the the ozone-depleting stuff. Exactly, the ozone-depleting stuff. And CFCs were phased out under the Montreal Protocol, which was signed in 1987. What people didn't realise at the time is that these HFCs are actually very bad news for the environment too. They are extremely powerful greenhouse gases. And so momentum's been building on this issue over the past decade. But um, uh, Barack Obama, Xi Jinping, very keen now to get a deal done that extends the Montreal Protocol to cover HFCs. So it's it sounds like this is one of those, uh, the, the cure is as bad as the disease or, or a kind of a different disease. I mean, what, what is it that's bad about HFCs? They are between hundreds and thousands of times more warming than carbon dioxide. It's always difficult to, to make these kind of comparisons, you know, one gas in terms of another, because also there are a range of HFCs. They're man-made substances, but they hang around in the atmosphere for, you know, maybe 15 years sort of on average, and CO2 lasts centuries in some cases. But they are very, very warming in that time. And so what's the the mechanism for tackling them? Extending the Montreal Protocol, which is what's going to be under discussion, particularly at meetings in Rwanda next month. All countries would have to agree on a date by which HFCs would have to be phased down. And then rich countries will phase them down first and then developing countries would follow afterwards so they get a bit more leeway. And working out when that phase down should begin is kind of one of the the really sticky points at the moment. The real outlier here is India, which a few months ago said, oh, no, we don't want to do anything until 2030. And low-lying island states in particular are, are very, very worried by that. And so when the HFCs go, what what am, what am I going to be filling my air conditioner and, and propelling my hairspray with? So there are other HFCs, for example, that have been discovered that are much less warming. There are also uh, natural substances, which people are turning to increasingly as well, hydrocarbons and things like ammonia, which you can use in big refrigeration systems. So we've got alternatives. There are companies putting them in air conditioners and things like that already. And um, one of the other benefits from extending the Montreal Protocol is that we expect that things like air conditioning units will become much, much more efficient because that's essentially what happened last time when we did this with CFCs. So not only could there be a benefit because we'd be getting rid of these substances that are incredibly warming, we'd also be getting air conditioners, which would use less energy, so less of a burden on the planet. Well, it all sounds win-win then. So uh, how likely is it that a deal will, will go through? There's a lot of optimism and a lot of expectation that a deal is going to be done. It just depends on how strong it is and how quickly HFCs get phased out. Thanks for that, Miranda. 
Do you think climate change is high enough on the world's agenda? Join in the conversation by emailing us at radio@economist.com. Next, we look into digital developments unlocking more secrets about our past. The world is littered with ancient scrolls, but many of them have been made rather delicate with the passage of time. So archaeologists have to choose between reading them but watching them disintegrate in front of their eyes or preserving them intact, left unread. But a new digital technique has managed to decipher one ancient scroll, a burnt one, without actually unrolling it. There are quite a few damaged materials in libraries around the world, but the damage creates the problem of being able to do any kind of physical conservation. That's Dr. Brent Seals, professor and chairman of the computer science department at the University of Kentucky. His team has been working with a well-established procedure of X-ray scanning, which builds up 3D representations of the interiors of objects. You may have heard it called. CAT scan in the doctor's office. But with a few helpful computer algorithms, he's been trying to unravel the contents of a rather tricky fragment of history. This scroll was excavated in 1970 from a synagogue that was discovered in En Gedi, Israel, which is a small town on the shore of the Dead Sea. The scroll itself was found at that archaeological site in the Holy Ark of the floor of the temple excavation. There are about five to seven wraps of leather material. It's written on animal skin, but you can't tell that by looking at it because it's completely blackened and terrible shape, basically. The algorithms his team used have no easy task. They must work out from a series of swirling shapes in the 3D model how to distinguish between layers and then look for variations in density within them. That correlates with the ink that makes up the ancient letters, and the one they unfurled turned out to be well worth the effort. This scroll is the Bible. It is the first and second chapters of the book of Leviticus in partial form. I think there are quite a few examples of ancient materials that fall into this category. We'd be able to wring more information from the writing out of those materials using methods like this. We can be sure many archaeologists can't wait until this technique is rolled out. Last week we discussed the grandmotherly advice of feeding a cold and starving a fever, or the other way around, whichever it is. Garrett Dornward wrote in on Facebook to say, "Of course she was right. Every second week, someone makes a discovery that your grandma already knew. Newsflash: experience equals research. Now, how do I go about getting funding to see if going to bed early helps me rise early? Keep in touch with the results of your study, Garrett. Don't forget, you can give us feedback and comments or thoughts about all our content on our Facebook page or on Twitter at Economist Radio. Moving on now to a more behind-the-scenes look at science." One general feature of scientific research is that you must get your papers into journals in order to further your success. In an increasingly competitive environment, it's considered a choice between publish or perish. The question is, does that breed bad science? Anna Bhattacharya, our science correspondent, has been looking into the issue. Now we've talked a lot about the flaws of science, both in in print and and here on Babbage, but this actually goes far further back, even than the Economist has been looking at it, doesn't it? Yes, Jason. I mean, the problem has been known about from at least the fifties. There was one influential review in 1962 by a psychologist called Jacob Cohen. Now, what he did was he looked at 70 articles published in a psychology journal, and he calculated what he called their statistical power, and that was how likely is this experiment going to be. To actually spot a result, if there is one in the experiment, what he found was that for the relatively small effects that psychologists normally look for, the power of the studies was about twenty percent. So one in five should pick up a result. But all of the papers 
were reporting significant results. So what was going on? He realised that, A, a lot of researchers were, were just reporting only their positive results, but B, and crucially, what was happening was they were publishing these results, but in amongst them was likely to be quite a lot of junk science false positives that their experiments had picked up, which they were reporting in the literature. So part of this is just a bit of the psychology behind publishing in the first place, right? Confirmation bias and publication bias and so on. And you put the stuff that doesn't work in a drawer and you publish the stuff that does. But I guess what we're what we're seeing now, what you've been looking into this week, is kind of something more systemic even than that. That's right. So this is a paper by Paul Smaldino and Richard McElreath. And they looked at the last 50 years worth of experiments in psychology, neuroscience and medicine. And they pulled out about 50 studies spanning that time. And what they've found is actually the statistical power of published papers hasn't improved at all. And they ask, why? Why should this be? I mean, there's been repeated calls in the literature for scientists to improve the power of their studies by increasing the number of subjects they use, for example. Hasn't happened. So what they propose is that it's not about deliberate cheating, but it's about bad incentives in science. And the incentive that they zero in on is the pressure to publish copiously. That pressure certainly exists. No one, no one can test that. But how do they test whether that has a, a bad effect on science? They've built a computer model. And the primary assumption is that the labs in their model get rewarded for publishing positive results. And they can't publish negative ones. So each of the labs has a particular power that represents how good their methods are at spotting new results. Now, the problem is that labs that have a high power also tend to produce a lot of junk science as well because their methods zoom in on signal so much so that they're actually spotting signal when it's not there as well. Now, they can offset that by exerting uh, what in the model is called effort. Uh, simply <laughs> And possibly also in the lab called the effort. Lab. Yes. But what happens is labs who exert effort can produce fewer experiments to publish, but they are also producing fewer false positives. So they're producing real science. Now, when they run that model, the labs that exert least effort tend to win out over time, and they influence the next generation of labs who then adopt their bad methods. And so increasingly, more and more junk science just litters the scientific literature. And moreover, the methods, what people see as successful strategies are actually inherited. Exactly. So it's an evolutionary model, a model that shows that bad science is sort of hereditary. Right. And the cause of bad incentives. So, I mean, what can be done to fix this then if this is sort of already baked into science as we know it? Uh, yeah, the obvious answer is to change the incentives. Now do, that do more is, effort. More easy, effort is required. Easier, easier said than done. A couple of things that they suggest is that you might focus grants on people rather than projects. And that would potentially remove some of the pressure that a lab feels to publish incessantly in order to win project grants. Another thing that they mentioned is that you could spread the funding round a little bit more. At the moment, funding is very concentrated in the US and in Britain on just a few labs. And the fight for funding means there's lots of other labs constantly publishing results in an effort to win funding. Well, this is exactly it. It seems like the single metric everyone's aiming for is number of papers. Isn't another maybe thorny uh, way of going about it measuring quality rather than mere quantity? Absolutely. And that is, of course, the real solution. The problem is that the people who are doing the assessing are busy. There are other scientists. 
it's far easier just to count up the number of papers or to look at where researchers publish than doing a systematic analysis of the work. Well, what about changing the, the review process itself or the, or the kinds of journals that are out there? So there are some new initiatives underway. Just this week, a journal called BMI Psychology uh, announced that it would trial a results-free version of peer review. So the reviewers would get the paper minus the results. They would have to judge the paper on the basis of the method alone and decide whether the journal should accept it or reject it just on that basis. And then after they decide, that's when they find out what the results are. So there's potential there that that sort of initiative, if it spreads, could help. Well, I will have to see some results and, of course, some replications before I feel like this whole science problem is fixed. Thanks, Anano. I'm afraid that's all for this episode. You've been listening to Babbage. If you liked it, why not rate it on iTunes? And to read any of the articles discussed this week, pick up the forthcoming issue of The Economist in print or see it online. In London, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation... Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.